Night Talk with Oliver Dixon. President Ramaphosa today signed the Electoral Amendment Bill into law, officially making it the Electoral Amendment Act. So before we start the conversation, let me tell you what actually is in it. It is based on the minority report presented by the Ministerial Advisory Committee that was set up specifically for this, of course, in the ambit of Home Affairs, and it makes minimal changes effectively to the Electoral Act as it currently stands. It does that by applying the closed-list PR system to parties and individuals. Provinces are treated, according to what the new model is, provinces will be treated as distinct constituencies. In the Act, it's called regions, and the National Assembly is divided into 200 regional seats and 200 compensatory seats uh, drawn from the PR lists. So independent candidates can only compete for regional seats effectively. So then six main changes really uh, the Act brings about, the Amendment Act brings about. It brings about changes in the definition to allow individuals to contest elections in the National Assembly and provincial legislatures. It provides for the nomination of independent candidates to contest elections and provides for the requirements which these independent candidates must meet to be able to stand for elections. And it provides that a registered party must submit a declaration confirming that all its candidates are registered to vote in the region or province where an election will be taking place. And it provides the procedure to allow for non-compliant nominations of an independent uh, candidate. And uh, penultimately, it provides for the inspection of copies of lists of independent candidates and accompanying documents, and finally provides for objections to independent candidates. That's effectively what it is about. We're going to go into the history of that a little bit earlier on, a little bit later on in the conversation, but I want us to rewind early on into our democracy. When we designed and configured our democracy, What did the architects thereof imagine it would be? How did they imagine the electoral process to work and the impact it would have on our body politic and, I guess, on governance altogether? And I'm going to start off the conversation this evening with Stephen Friedman and later on I'll be speaking to Granville Abrams and Bulelani Mkotliswa. Stephen, thank you so much for your time this evening, Prof. Really do appreciate it. Uh, Let's go back to, I guess, the birth of our democracy. What was top of mind for the architects of our democracy when they designed our electoral process? What were they trying to achieve? And was it perhaps the best model at the time? Yeah, good evening, Oliver. Look, what they were trying to achieve was to be as inclusive as possible, to make sure that uh, everybody had a voice in Parliament. Uh, Because if you'd had some kind of constituency system like we have for half our local government representatives, then by my calculations, we would only have had two or at most three parties in Parliament. Uh, Of course, today we have a lot more than that. And the idea is that, uh, you know, even if you're part of a relatively small community, if you can get together enough votes to get one seat in a 400-seat house, then you have a voice. Um, and I think that was really appropriate at the time, and quite frankly, I think it's still very appropriate, um, because you don't want to have a situation in which people feel uh, that they're excluded from the political process because they're not supporters of one or two big parties. Um, so I think it did help at the time to make Parliament more inclusive and to make more people feel that they actually had a voice in Parliament, uh, and it can still play that role today. So it was to prevent hegemonic partisan politics in the parliamentary body. Uh, 
did they do so successfully, given that we really only had two big parties for most of our democracy? Now we have about a big three, effectively. And if you look at local government level, which this conversation is effectively not about, you have a bunch of kingmakers. But at national politics level, you still have but a big three, big two, maybe even a big four, if you want to consider the IFP to some extent. Did it effectively prevent hegemonic politics? No, but that, I, I would dispute that that's true. We don't have a big three or a big four. We still have a big one. Um, and that's got nothing to do with the electoral system. That's got to do with the way that voters cost their votes. Just remember, uh, to illustrate my point, that at the last local elections, the worst, local ele- worst election for the ANC since we became a democracy, uh, the governing party dropped to 46% of the vote. The second biggest party got 20%. The third biggest party got 10% or 11%. Uh, that's not a two-party system. Um, you know, basically what is happening at the moment is that the, the one big party is losing support. And the support is being distributed over a variety of political parties. Uh, I mean, in the last local election of the ANC, actually dropped less than the DA did. The DA lost more support than the ANC did uh, because the ANC's votes got distributed, as I say, among a series of smaller parties. Um, so we do have um, a multi-party system. I mean, you know, at the moment, as you know, some people complain about this. We have a situation at local government level, uh, you know, where small parties have inordinate power. Uh, small parties change their minds about which coalition they want to support, and suddenly you have a new mayor. So, you know, I would I would argue this. You know, it's been distorted to an extent by the fact that we've had one big party, yeah, uh, which has dominated. Uh, but that is beginning to change. Yeah, the inclusion of independent candidates effectively give voters more choice. But there's a normative question that it beckons, and that is, does more choice necessarily mean better choice? And is that a, a necessary and sufficient improvement of democratic participation? Well, I, I think more, you know, who decides what better choice is? I mean, if you give people more choices, uh, I think that's worth preferable. Um, but people tend to make choices. I think very often we make the mistake very common in democracies to underestimate the intelligence of voters. Uh, I think people do know what their interests are. They do know what they feel is good for them, and they vote accordingly. So, you know, if if the problem is that we're going to have zillions of independent candidates who are going to make it, you know, the, the ballot paper look like a telephone directory, yeah. the reality is that if you look at the last local elections and and previous local elections, independent candidates hardly featured. Um, Small parties featured, but independent candidates won very few seats in the local election. Uh, Quite frankly, I'd be surprised if independent seats, uh, independents won any seats uh, in in, uh, next year's election. Um, And those are voters making choices. Saying, look, you know, this is not, this doesn't work for us. Um, so I don't think we ever make progress by denying people choices. Um, and uh, you tend to find that if people are given the choices, uh, they make reasonable choices. Yeah. 
Prof. Uh, Friedman, thank you so much for your time this evening. Really appreciate it. I'm going to let you go over there. We yeah. uh, Give us a call, 086-000-2032. What do you think of this? 086-000-2032. We're taking your WhatsApp voice notes on 0614-104-107. I want to bring Bulelani into the conversation, who I introduced earlier on as Bulelani Mkohliswa, the Executive Director of New Nation Movement. Granville Abrams, who's the General Manager uh, for Electoral Matters at the IEC, is also a part of this conversation. Bulelani, thank you so much for your time this evening. New Nation Movement brought this, uh, this application uh, that brought about effectively this constitutional change and amendment. Is the outcome or effectively is what is in the act what New Nation Movement hoped would be at the start of this journey? Well, thank you so much for having us. Um, well, um, to be quite honest, I'm happy that Mr. Abrams is there, uh, but the reality of the fact is that what the bill has been, that has been put before the president and now signed into law it's far from what we had gone to the Constitutional yeah. Court for. But not only that, what the Constitutional Court gave, not just us as a nation movement, but the nation, it was really to destroy and dismantle the hegemony that the political parties and the monopoly that the, mon- the political parties enjoy currently. Yeah. And unfortunately, I, the IEC has been very party you know, to this process of defending this existing status quo, and which is very sad because the IEC is supposed to be an implementing agent, um, yeah. and that even advises, you know, uh, the, the the executive and the and the national assembly as to what should be the way forward. So, 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 unfortunately, uh, what the the president has signed into law. Is, is, is far from it, both in terms of the spirit and the letter of the judgment, because the judgment was very clear to say our electoral laws are unconstitutional to the extent that they they, they, they force uh, citizens, adult citizens, who want to participate in the National Assembly or the provincial legislatures to do so via their membership of their political parties. So that was the order of the Constitutional Court. But now when Justice Majanga, who was the main author of the judgment, began to break it down, it became very clear that Section 18 was a fundamental section that, you know, the whole judgment was based on, and also Section 19, of course, which talks about the political rights. So Section 18, just in brief, talks about the freedom of association, and the freedom of association has two elements to it the negative and the positive element. The negative element is when a citizen chooses to disassociate, which is where the independent candidate would come in. But the judgment went so much further and much deeper on the positive element. That is where now the citizens must be allowed space to collectively come together and make a collective decision without having to join or form political parties. So this law has disregarded that altogether. Yeah. What then would have been the ideal? Because independent candidates can stand. Uh, Professor Friedman says he's doubtful that will disrupt hegemonic politics uh, because he would be surprised if an independent candidate makes the National Assembly coming out of the any, any of the 200 regions here. But it effectively 
the question remains, what would have been the ideal model then? One that doesn't allow for a PR type PR list type of model that we see in uh, local governments and what it's completely and 100% constituency based. Is that what you had hoped for? Look, um, for us, one of the challenges that we have with the current system is that political parties have become more like private clubs um, to the extent that uh, the the closed system literally means that the citizens have no say in terms of who is actually on the list that is going to go both to the national and the provincial list. So, 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 so one of the things that we are hoping that this process would actually get to is to assist the political parties to open up the space more. Of course, they, I mean, no, no man can be told how to run his household. So the next best thing would have then had the, 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 the minister of home affairs uh, should have done at least was now to make sure that the constituency-based system is implemented. And the 24 months, and by extension, the 33 months, it was sufficient for that process to be implemented, particularly if the recommendations that were put forth were listened to. Mm-hmm. We've we've lost uh, Granville Abrams there. We're trying to get Granville back on the line, uh, but we're seemingly struggling with that. But we will as soon as we can uh, and, and bring uh, Granville Abrams into the conversation here. Uh, are you then confident, Bulelani, uh, on the IEC being able to execute the act as it as it stands? Well, I I must say. Uh, there are many of us who have lost confidence in the IEC, on the, just on the independence of the IEC. To many of us, IEC is very much, it has its allegiance to the ruling party, which is very sad. So even in terms of them carrying out the, the, this process, we, uh, we do not think that they, they, um, they, they, they have the moral right actually to actually be the ones who carry out this process that is so critical so so in, in, i think uh, to answer you directly yep. we don't we don't have the confidence in that on, on what do you base your assessment that the iec holds some sort of allegiance whether explicit or subtextual to the ruling party well number one the 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 results of the previous elections, the national elections. I mean, I remember very well the 2019 elections. There were a number of smaller political parties um, who knew that they, you know, their votes were far less than what they were supposed to have received. In yeah. fact, even in the local government elections of 2021, let me just write that example. There is a a a a, a community leader. There who registered a political party and voted in his district, in his, in his area. When the results were announced, I mean, that political party at least was, is based in Cape Town in Kailicha. When the results were announced, it was said that there was no vote that came from Kailicha. And yet the leader of the party is from Kailicha. And he and his wife at least definitely voted for themselves. 
and there were a couple of yeah, but I mean you can't with certainty say that at least his single vote and that with his wife was not spoiled ballots right uh, an accusation of that nature doesn't make it automatic that the electoral process was fraught it's largely very transparent would it you not say the fact that I their party agree, representatives I the fully f- agree but the point is a political leader cannot have a spoiled ballot I mean, they are the ones who are teaching. You, you'd be, you'd be very surprised. You'd be incredibly surprised <laughs> at the lack of vote education among well, some of what we consider well, political maybe, leaders. Of course, maybe, I may not necessarily have concrete evidence, but there is. You, you know, I think part of the, the weakness in, in, in our legal system is that people are innocent until proven guilty. And when you cannot prove that people are guilty, I mean, there are many people. We are going to yeah. and yet everyone knows that they are guilty. But there were just technicalities that they get off on those, or you know, on the grounds of those technicalities. So in 2019, there was about 12 or so smaller political parties that were, that even wrote to the IEC to, to you know to, to express their dissatisfaction in how the IEC uh, had actually managed that process. So 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 it, it, it's a pity. It's a pity that yeah. something that is so critical in the nation uh, and, and the IEC, instead of rising to the occasion and be there for the ordinary citizens, it chooses to play, to take sides. Okay. I'm gonna, yeah, I'm going to pause you there, Pulinani. Uh, Granville, thank you so much for your time this evening also joining this conversation. Really appreciate it. In 2021, we learned through court processes that it takes the IEC about 18 months to be able to effectively prepare for an election. Um, and this, of course, was off of the back of a court application uh, brought forward to uh, postpone the election. The Constitutional Court, of course, threw out that application and said elections must happen uh, before the deadline. We now know that the deadline for this election cycle is the end of August. That brings just under 18 months left for the IEC to be able to effectively prepare for an election. Given that there's a new electoral model on the table altogether that the IEC must now follow, notwithstanding that there may be constitutional challenges to that, uh, and we'll ask Bulilani if he intends to do so, is the IEC able to execute the Electoral Amendment Act as it currently stands? Uh, Oliver, thanks a lot. I think to start off with your first point, and and, and, and I think that's very, very important. Um, and the Constitutional Court affirmed or confirmed this uh, when we approached them for a postponement to the local government election as a result of the uh, COVID environment. And the, and, and the position was clarified. Elections cannot be postponed beyond the uh, constitutional time frame. So this election is going to take place. That's first point. And, and, and nothing is going to stop the election yeah. from taking place. The constitutional court has spoken on this matter. This is not the IEC that's saying that. Yeah. The second thing is, is that initially, um, in the first round, in our first affidavit, and also with the, ex- the first extension, we we did say that this is what we required. I think initially about two years um, it takes to to prepare this. However, at the last round, by the time the parliament had requested the final um, extension or postponement, uh, we the the legislation had already taken shape. 
Um, after it came back from the National Council of Provinces, there was basically three key issues uh, that had come back. And that was the electoral reform consultation panel yeah. after listening to the inputs uh, coming from uh, members of civil society. The other one was then also to place the quota requirement also on political parties that are not um, uh, represented at local level. And there was a third one. And and it was just those three issues. And the other issues, Parliament had settled on already. The National Assembly, as well as the uh, National Council of uh, Province. And in our <coughs> in December, we said we now have clarity and we already started preparing the key uh, issues required for the amenda, amendment, amongst others, the result system to accommodate for independence. We started uh, drafting and planning the systems requirements, for quota, the quota requirement, etc. So we've already started. We haven't waited. And the reason why we have started is it was a risk-based decision, but uh, we, we're compelled yeah. to do that because elections cannot go beyond um, the constituted uh, constitutional time frame. So, yes, we are on track as things stand. Bulelani, do you guys intend on constitutionally challenging the validity of the act as it is, having been signed into law, or are you going to let it be and let the election run? Well, we, we honestly believe that we, we do not like the constitutional crisis that we find ourselves in. Um, and to that extent, we are really uh, contemplating just le- letting this matter be. However, we continue then to ask ourselves that um, would this delinquent parliament that uh, we have, is it safe? To, for us to let this matter lie. So as, 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 as we speak, we, um, it, we are engaging with our legal team as to whether to go back to the Constitutional Court on urgent basis, and also we are I mean, asking ourselves the implication of us going uh, back to the Constitutional Court. And I think it is also worth noting that this matter we had been engaging with the IEC as far as 2014, and I have on record where the IEC in 2018 said to us, well, if you are not happy with some of what we are presenting to you, we are then saying, go go to the court and go and challenge us in the court of law. And that is exactly what we did. But unfortunately, even though the court of law has clearly ruled in our favor to say there must be more space open for ordinary citizens to come into play, the, this bill, this act, does not pass the constitutional master. And, and, and currently, I must say, we are leaning strongly on going back to the constitutional court on urgent basis. Yeah, okay. Uh, Granville, last question to you before I let you go here. Um, you must admit, at least, that this bill, this act is not perfect, right? The IEC, it seems to me at the moment, does not know what to do in an instance where I stand as an independent candidate. I hypothetically need 35,000, 45,000 votes to get my parliamentary seat as an independent. But for some reason, in my constituency, I was able to garner 100,000 votes. You don't know what to do with those excess votes and how to assign them, do you? The tells us what to do. 
an independent can only can only obtain one seat. Um, obviously, he can't split himself, and that's the whole nature of being an independent. So if an independent wins or qualifies for more than one seat, whether it be in the same legislature uh, or in the provincial and in the national assembly, uh, that person can only um, be allocated one seat. The rest of the seats then goes back into the pool in a recalculation and any excess votes is then discarded. The votes are not transferable. Okay. That is what the, the legislation says. So it's quite clear. Um, and it's and it's absolutely nothing new. Um, in the car- uh, prior to this, in the in the previous, uh, where we only dealt with parties, if a party had insufficient candidates on its seat, on its list, then it would also have forfeited um, those seats. So it's not it's not a new uh, formula or idea. It's always been entrenched yeah. um, in the in the legislation. Yeah, Granville Abrams, General Manager for Electoral Matters at the IEC. Thank you so much for your time this evening. Pulilani Mkotliswa is the Executive Director for New Nation Movement. Thank you so much for your time this evening. Really, really do appreciate it. Earlier on, we started the conversation with Professor Stephen Friedman, who is a professor in the Humanities Faculty at the University of Johannesburg. We're going to take a quick break. On the other side of that, we talk human interest and we talk about the humanitarian crisis Haiti faces.